We're going to pick up where we left off in the previous message concerning principalities and powers. I hope you took time to read Psalms 110, 133, Psalm 2, Psalm 68, and Psalm 22. And if you haven't, uh, take some time to do that. It will help you a great deal in uh, understanding the material. I believe they read together as one story uh, that tells a clearer picture. And the Holy Spirit will take you where he wants to take you as you read it. But I'll try to spell out some of it here uh, in the time we've got together. We see a picture of the Messiah in Psalm 110 being welcomed to the throne by the Father. He's told to sit until his enemies have been made his footstool. The rod of authority that will deal with those enemies is said to be extended through Mount Zion, which is a picture of the church, according to Hebrews chapter 12 and other verses we won't take the time to cite. The people of God who are a kingdom of priests exercise their authority in prayer and in ministry. They're told to ask for the nations. For the nations belong to the Messiah as in his inheritance, and so are also our inheritance, because we are we're one with him. We reign in life by Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 5 tells us. It's Jesus' victory, but we, his people, manifest that victory through prayer and ministry to the world. It's not a helpful argument to say, as some do, that we can do nothing, that it's all Jesus. Now, please don't misunderstand me. It is all Jesus if we're talking about who made it possible for the evil to be overthrown. But the one who made it possible sat down and gave his authority to his church. And he said that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The enemy has worked hard for years to spin a web of deceit through religious systems in order to contradict this truth. So many believers in the West are afraid of the devil, are hoping for an any-minute escape through some hole in the sky. In the meantime, many are not only afraid of the enemy, but they're doing nothing to confront the evil or to bring the kingdom. They are often just going to prophecy conferences to talk about what the devil is doing and how the Antichrist is going to take over. And I, I don't, I, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. That's, that's really disrespectful and unfair to some people. I'm sure not everybody has this mindset who goes to prophecy conferences. And sometimes their commitment to a certain type of end-time scenario, though, causes a truly misguided view of the task we've been called to. For instance, many know that there's a great move of the Holy Spirit in in the nation of Iran. Trustworthy eyewitnesses report that the growth of the church there is very much like the growth of the church in China. The population in general is sick of Islamic legalism and ready to overthrow their government. Yet, I heard a commentary on a Christian radio show a few days ago saying that uh, no great evangelism should be expected to be successful in Iran because Iran must be destroyed, according to Ezekiel 38, in in the invasion of, of, of Israel by Russia with its allies, including Iran. So according to their interpretation of Ezekiel 38, their interpretation of it, means that we shouldn't have a a concern for the souls of the people of Iran or for the people of Russia, for that matter. Uh, No real concerns for the souls of the people. They're just fodder for the end times prophecy machinery that will be chewed up when, when it all comes down. At least that's what they hope for. Now, again, I know I'm speaking in general terms, and please forgive me if... You have a a prophetic scheme that includes that interpretation, and yet that's not your heart toward the lost people of Iran or Russia. But I'm just telling you what I've observed. 
There are many who are giving all they have to serve the kingdom and who do also believe in the pre-trib rapture scenario and all that goes with it. But generally, the belief in the rapture has left a large majority of the church in the West impotent and without vision. We will all come into the unity of the Spirit eventually. John 17 promises as well as other verses And whatever it takes for us to get there, so be it. But Psalm 133 speaks of that unity. The unity of God's people is pictured like anointing oil poured down the entire body from the head and also as the shining glory of the dew on the mountains of Israel. There's a play on words in the Hebrew description of Mount Zion. Uh, Z-I-O-N and Mount Zion, Mount Sion, S-E-O-N, that can refer to the rising of a new generation. So when you put these two psalms together, you get a clear picture of a people who are empowered in the day of God's gathering of his army to stand in unity of prayer, uh, and they will shine like the dew of Mount Hermon and Zion. I know I'm not being very clear about that, but I I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. It's just, uh, again, I'm dependent on whether you have read through these psalms or not because I don't want to take a lot of time to unpack things uh, that are clear if you read them. Psalm 2, Psalm 68 also gives an image of the final great conflict between light and dark in which God will finally overthrow the enemies of his kingdom, capture them in a vanquished train, and break their hold over the nations of the earth. And then uh, finally, Psalm 80, excuse me, Psalm 22, Jesus is revealed on the cross as being surrounded by the bulls of Bashan. And we ended our previous session describing these bulls as evil supernatural beings, not cattle for heaven's sakes. Jesus takes his disciples way up north to the region known as Caesarea Philippi, where a shrine to the demon god Pan was located. This is the region where in ancient times in the Canaanite worship of Baal it took place there, and then later the apostate king of Israel, Jeroboam, established images of bull gods for ongoing worship of Baal. Jesus and his disciples are seated in the very area known to the locals as the gates of hell, where Jesus explains that it is here with his feet and their feet standing on that rock that he would build his church, his ecclesia, his ruling governmental body in the earth. So you see in Psalm 110, Psalm 68, Psalm 2, Psalm uh, 22. These verses paint a picture uh, 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 together. Uh, You might have to put the pieces together and trust the Holy Spirit to interpret them correctly for us. And I'm I'm not trying to be dogmatic about it and be just as uh, hard-headed in my interpretation as I feel some others are in what I think are erroneous interpretations. We all know in part, we prophesy in part, but the Holy Spirit will guide us into all the truth, especially as we approach the period of history where these things begin to come to pass. So I'm saying all that to say this. Why was the area of Bashan, especially Mount Hermon, a place of ancient satanic idolatry. Why did Jesus want to make a strong statement to his disciples of such emphatic clarity that he takes them all the way up there to physically be present and makes a point to sit in the very shadow of the gates of hell, the shrine of the demon god Pan, who is another picture of Baal, and there say that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, it's interesting to note that the next chapter from chapter 16, Matthew chapter 17, is where the transfiguration takes place. 
That chapter tells us how Jesus takes Peter, James, and John into a high mountain. Now, the various mountains and names and events related to them are all rich and very important study, as important as studying the symbols and meanings of the layout and furniture of the tabernacle. And specialists in those studies can take us into some very rich understanding that begins to unpack a lot of important truths here. There are different views on certain parts of the story, as you might guess. But I think it's safe to say that the transfiguration is happening on Mount Hermon. What's the significance of that? Well, I'll tell you in a minute. It refers to a high mountain, and Mount Hermon dominates the horizon. Psalm 133 paints a picture of the dew of Mount Hermon as the symbol of a new generation who would bring forth life and light out of the darkness. All that is certainly present in these verses. But there's one more issue we need to make clear. In the writings of the Second Temple period, uh, especially in the book of Enoch, which is quoted in several places in the canonical New Testament, it tells that on Mount Hermon, That's where the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6 descended to the earth and set in motion their invasion of mankind with the evils that we see listed in that story. Mount Hermon, the mountains of the area of Bashan, was the realm of King Og. Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 13 refers to the area of Bashan as the land of the giants. Jesus is manifesting his pre-incarnate glory as the Most High God on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember in Psalm 68 where it says, quote, Bashan is the hill which God desires to dwell in. The chariots of God are many thousands. The Lord is among them as he was on Sinai. What's the relationship between Bashan and Sinai? Well, among other things, Sinai is where he comes down to marry Israel and to, uh, to make them his people, his bride. And Bashan is referred to here as a place God desires to dwell. And the implication is that he desires to retake territory that has been taken by darkness. And so these two, these two pictures are, are shown, the The hill of Bashan where God dwells with his many chariots is likened to the mountain of Sinai where he came down to to marry his bride Israel. Then it follows on to refer to the ascension, the leading the armies of God in his train of vanquished foes in Psalm 68, I mean. Uh, Psalm 68 goes on to describe the ascension. Then giving gifts to men uh, is mentioned in Psalm 68, uh, which is quoted in Ephesians chapter 4. So God could dwell among man, uh, Paul says, uh, quoting again from Psalm 68. This is a prophetic picture of God establishing his bridal relationship to his people in opposition to powers of darkness who have sought to adulterate and uh, rape away from God the human race. He then repeats that he will bring his people out from Bashan, again Psalm 68, as he brought his people out from the depths of the sea. The parallelism here of Bashan and Sinai again. All warfare imagery of redemption and deliverance from evil, whether it's referring to Bashan or whether it's referring to Sinai. It's, it's a picture of redemption and deliverance from evil powers. This is all a scene of preparation for the coming final conflict that will take place at Calvary. So in Psalm 22, we have, have this direct reference to Jesus being surrounded on the cross by the, quote, bulls of Bashan. Jesus' death on the cross was the undoing of the devil's hold on mankind. The message of the gospel would be spread by the people of God 
who would exercise their authority in his name. To refer again to Psalm 110, God would extend the rod of his authority from out of Mount Zion through the ministry of his church. This would continue throughout history until finally, to quote Matthew chapter 24, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the world for a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. Now this is not speaking of the end the way we tend to think of it in referring to the end of the world. It's speaking of the close of the age, the complete overthrow of the principalities and powers who are right now ruling this world. First John five nineteen. The whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. Second Corinthians chapter four verse four. If our gospel is hid, it's hid to them who are lost, whom the God of this world has blinded. Uh, Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4 in Jesus' confrontation with the devil in the temptation. The devil says to Jesus, look at all these nations of the earth. All them are mine and they've been delivered into my hand and I will give them to you if you will just worship me. And of course Jesus refuses and says, get behind me. Uh, one interpretation of get behind me from uh, some Greek scholars is follow behind me. In other words, uh, I will be preached to the nations and you will have to follow in my, in my train, which is exactly what Psalm 68 says, uh, that he has led captivity captive. He will drag his enemies in the train behind him. In the spirit world, that's a done, settled deal. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 says we are seated already now with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you need to remember that when you go into prayer, no matter how you feel, uh, no matter what mood you're in, no matter what your emotions are, no matter what the circumstances are, you are going into the throne room where you have a place seated right next to the Lord Jesus, symbolically speaking in which you extend the rod of his authority, which is the, the prayer in his name, into the, into the universe, your universe, as well as the universe. I believe this final event that brings the conclusion of this age and the birth of the world to come is obviously a process rather than a single event. It is an unfolding process. And that process is carried on by and through the people of God, the church, in prayer and in ministry to people. God is evidently very patient, for he has put up with a long set of periodic uh, passivity episodes where the church has completely failed to do anything to get the job done. We have in certain periods become stuck in the mud of cultural religion. And when that has happened, the very principalities and powers we should be overthrowing with the truth have come in and taken over the religious system, disguised themselves as teachers of truth, and have raised up all kinds of false doctrines meant to keep the church passive, ignorant, deceived, and ineffective if not fully, uh, sinfully idolatrous. Such doctrines as the cessation of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, I believe the doctrine of the removal of the church from the earth before any conflict can occur to, to save uh, the poor little soft western church from having to face anything difficult. The idea that all God meant at the cross was to take us to heaven when we die. That that's all this is about, is moving earth to heaven and living in a disembodied spirituality where we sit on clouds and play harps. And um, the thought of it bores people to death, especially men. Such doctrines as uh, these and, and others I, I won't name have become strongholds of, of bondage because they are mixed with certain parts of truth. But a mixed lie with the truth is really stronger than a pure lie. Harder to break, harder to discern. 
When the church has been awake and engaged, it has seen in action in the casting out of evil spirits and the care of the poor and the oppressed and the confrontation of human evil wherever possible, uh, in the overthrow of the slave trade, for instance, or now in our day, the overthrow of the sex trade, as well as in the transformation of whole governments and corporations and the arts and any and every other human endeavor that has the potential for bringing forth life and goodness in place of oppression and evil. Uh, wherever there is care for the defenseless, battling disease and poverty, restoring, restoring a ruined earth, healing families, breaking destructive behaviors in people. Wherever there is life flowing, this is the people of God overturning demonic evil strongholds. But you see, in the old way of thinking about the end of the age, uh, that, that would all be considered false doctrine. Well, we're not supposed to make heaven on earth. We're not supposed to bring heaven to earth. We're supposed to fight darkness, but we're going to be defeated in the, in the long run, and the only thing that's going to save us from it is uh, God swooping down and rescuing us uh, at the last moment, and then, then the whole world gets turned over to the powers of darkness for seven years while we have a picnic in heaven. And uh, all that kind of stuff. Well, the great missionary push of the 18th and 19th centuries did not believe in the end times theories that I just mentioned that are so popular in America today. They believed they were, on the contrary, to take the gospel of the kingdom. I mean the full gospel, which means far more than just preaching a salvation sermon, good as that is. But they are to disciple the nations, teaching the nations to obey, quoting the Lord Jesus, all that I've commanded you. He, Jesus didn't say, have them pray, pray a sinner's prayer and then leave them to themselves. You know, I remember uh, listening to a great, respected world evangelist who uh, was telling about how they had made such a wonderful penetration into African nations and there had been so many converts and so many people who would come to Christ in, in their crusades. Uh, but then he said with almost tears in his eyes, he said, but you know who discipled them? You know who's taught them in our absence? Islam. Islam has come in and established families and established governments and established cultural systems because the church only had its eye on flying out of here instead of obeying what we were commanded to do. Psalm 2, Psalm 22, verse 27, as well as Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give you nations as your inheritance, not individual souls saved from their bodies so their bodies can die and go into the dust and the earth can die and go into hell. Okay, I think I've made my point without beating it, uh, beating you over the head with it. Romans chapter 8 gives us another picture of this scenario where it says in verse 19 through 23, many of you could quote this, for the entire creation, all of nature, awaits expectantly and longs earnestly for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility and frustration, not because of some intentional fault on its part, but by the will of him who subjected it. He did it for the purpose of giving hope. And remember, the word hope in Scripture doesn't mean crossing your fingers and hoping things work out. The word hope means a guaranteed positive outcome. That guaranteed hope is that the entire creation, which has been subjected to frustration, was only done so for the purpose of the day would, that would come when that very creation would be delivered from the bondage of corruption and completely set free from decay and corruption and gain entrance into the glorious freedom of the children of God. 
And we know that the whole creation is groaning together in pain of labor until now. Well, we do know it, don't we? Not only the physical creation of the universe is groaning, but we ourselves also, we are groaning. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, but we're groaning inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Notice there is a redemption of our bodies that happens at the same moment that the body of the planet Earth is also redeemed. There's a connection, a direct connection to our bodies being redeemed and the planet being redeemed. That's what it means to be human, hummus of the earth. Adam made of the, the dust of the earth. The redemption of our bodies is the redemption of the planet from which our bodies were made. And if you think God's just going to let the planet uh, go to hell and be burned up and forgotten because there's nothing good in it, you got a whole other Bible that you're reading than the one I'm, I'm reading. Now, how will this end up? What's the final picture? Isaiah chapter 24, verse 21 and 22 gives another picture of this same scenario. We've looked at all those psalms that I quoted to you. Now we've looked at Romans chapter 8. Now let's look at Isaiah 24. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the army of rebellious angels in the heavenlies. That's the principalities and powers. And the kings of the earth upon the earth. That may be referring to earthly human kings, but it also could be referring to demonic rulers and strongholds of principalities. You know, I remember uh, the great father of, of the Pentecostal evangelistic movement of the 1940s and 50s uh, telling us a story one time of uh, how he had gone into the Philippines uh, and there was a girl in the uh, uh, Bilibed prison in the Philippines who was so demon possessed the guards were afraid of her and uh, he went into the cell with her much to the dismay of the, the, the cell keepers and he cast out this demon from this woman. And uh, we don't, you know, you don't take information from demons and build a doctrine on it. But it was interesting that uh, he said that when the demon came out of her, it said as it came through her mouth, I'll have to go get permission now to go find another host. And it was lamenting and whining and carrying on as it left. And so that does parallel the scriptural concept that seems to be that principalities and powers dwell in the heavenlies and rule over uh, earthbound spirits like this demon-possessed woman was possessed by. Uh, and it had to get permission from the ruling spirits as to where it could go next. Jesus talked about earthbound spirits who wander through dry places seeking rest and are unable to find it and finally say they will return to their house. They call the demon, they call the, the human that they'd been living in their house. See, they arrogantly uh, claim something that have, they have no right to claim. They're outlaws. They have to be driven out by force. Uh, so he says, uh, then they will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the dungeon and they will be shut up in the prison and after many days they will be shown for what they are. We won't take the time to look at it, but uh, there are other verses that refer to this, this prison house. This also uh, matches Colossians two, fifteen, where Jesus drags them behind his chariot, so to speak, after the resurrection, uh, or at, really at Calvary. Now there's an ever-increasing groaning, a deep inner longing in many of us, and soon all of us will, will know it. And that groaning is for the completion of this final battle to occur, and for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ and at his appearing for our full, complete redemption, which will manifest in the transformation of our bodies from mortal to immortal. 
This is what Romans 8 is referring to when it talks about the redemption of our bodies and the whole creation standing on tiptoe. One translation says, I think it's the Phillips translation, says the whole creation stands on tiptoe in anxious anticipation of that moment. Can't you picture that? It's therefore perfectly normal for you to find yourself getting weary of many of the aspects of this world system that you may have once enjoyed or at least tolerated, but are increasingly finding unable to be tolerated. You groan inside. The universe groans. The Holy Spirit within us joins us in unison of that groaning. Uh, but it's, it's not a groan of passive frustration or complaining. It's not growing weary with well-doing. We don't grow weary with well-doing. We grow weary with the wickedness of the, the world. But they are labor pains moving towards a birth. At that birth, many, many things will happen alongside our transformation and rising to meet the Lord in the air. Wonderful as that is, many other things will occur simultaneously. While our mortal bodies are being transformed into bodies that are untouchable by death, death itself will be being executed. And all the secondary aspects caused by the existence of death, fear, sorrow, shame, violence, torture, poverty, misery of every imaginable sort, every injustice that has ever occurred in the history of the world will be swallowed up by life. Paul spells it out in some detail, though, if you're like me, it's never enough detail to satisfy us. But in some detail, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says these words. Beginning at verse 22, Just as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order or rank, Messiah will be first at his resurrection, which already has occurred, obviously. Then those who are his at his coming. Now notice Paul is listing this as if it's happening consecutively, but there's a good 2,000 years separation between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. So please keep in mind, this may not fit perfectly on our chart and uh, that keeps us humble and keeps us always looking up and asking for the Holy Spirit to teach us. But there is a, a parallel uh, with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next company, those who are his at his coming. And they rise again at his second coming. After that comes the end. Paul says. Now, the word end here, unfortunately, it's not a good translation because we, we tend to interpret the end as meaning the same word as that which is at the end of a movie. The movie has finished, the story is over, and it's the end, and the curtain closes, and there's nothing that we have to look forward to after that. That's not the meaning of the end. A better word is uh, the completion or the consummation, the complete process that God has been working on since the creation uh, and before. That We don't know what happened before. We just know that this is the completion and consummation of this entire drama since the beginning of creation. And Paul goes on to say in, in uh, big pregnant statements that he could easily unpack, I'm sure, uh, for a lot more chapters if he just had only done it, but he didn't because the Holy Spirit didn't choose for us to know all these details. But it says when Jesus will have, uh, when, when he's risen from the dead and we have all risen from the dead and risen to meet him in the air, uh, then Jesus will deliver over the kingdom to his Father 
after rendering inoperative and abolishing every other rule and authority and power. That's just a reference again to Isaiah uh, that we quoted a while ago, Isaiah 24. He will punish the hosts of high ones in the heavenlies. He will render them inoperative. That's the real meaning of the word destroy here. Doesn't mean he'll annihilate them like a nuclear bomb blows something to to ashes. It means he will he will take away their power. They will no longer have any power. Now, what that means in detail, only only God knows, I guess. But it's good enough for me that he he takes away their power. They're totally inoperative. They're, they abolish. Uh, uh, he abolishes every rule and authority. All the governments, all the systems, all the armies, all the. Uh, religious systems, the economic systems, you see it in Revelation chapter 18, the annihilation of Babylon, the complete collapse of the whole system. Christ does this, but notice again, I, I keep saying it over and over, Christ does it with his people. He is the one who actually, of course, energizes it and makes it possible, but I think it's more than just us sitting in his lap playing like we're driving and him really driving. I think it's a little more than that. I think it's, it's uh, as I've said before, it's basic training for rulership. If we're going to rule, as Paul tells us we are, in places like First Corinthians chapter 6, where we rule over angels, where we judge angels, then uh, we got to learn how to do it. And so there's more going on here than just us sitting in a corner playing like we're helping Jesus with him, with him really doing everything. Anyway, for Christ must reign. Who does he reign over? Well, he's king of kings. What do kings do? They rule. They don't play like they rule. They rule. He is king of kings and lord of lords. For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's a direct reference to Psalm 110 again. I love this next part. The last enemy that will be subdued is death. Yes, Jesus destroyed death at his resurrection. Remember, we talked about D-Day and V-E Day. D-Day all historians agree was the end of the Nazi regime. There was no way they could recover from the death blow of the Allied invasion of Europe. But it was 11 plus months before the final victory in Europe. Jesus rose from the dead, made an open show of principalities and powers in the spirit world, it became manifestly evident that their time was over, that their regime and their rulership was over. Uh, when the demons in, in um, uh, Mark chapter 5 see Jesus in the Gadarene demoniac, what do they say? They say, have mercy on us. Please don't, don't destroy us before the time. They know there is a time coming when their rulership will be annihilated. Jesus has brought the kingdom. And everywhere Jesus goes, he casts out demons. And then he tells his disciples to cast out demons. What have we been doing for the last 2,000, well, the last 1,500 years? Trying to decide whether demons are real or not. Trying to decide whether there's such a thing. Uh, if we do finally figure out there is such a thing, it's always off in some third world country somewhere where superstitious, ignorant people don't know any better and they cast out the demons while we sit around and get PhD on top of PhD over subjects that don't amount to a hill of beans while demons take over our nation. The last enemy to be subdued is death. When everything is subject to Christ and death is forever destroyed, then shall the Son make himself subject to the Father and deliver the kingdom to him so that God may be all in all. I will not take time to try to unpack what I think that means just let it speak to your heart. Unpack it as the Holy Spirit directs you. 
But obviously it's not talking about Jesus being less than God, as some cult uh, cultists try to interpret it. It doesn't say that Jesus gives the kingdom to the Father so that the Father may be everything and Jesus is just God Jr. It says, it says Jesus delivers the kingdom back to the Father that God may be all in all. What does that mean? That mean well, if, it, if words mean anything, it means that there is nothing left of any darkness, sorrow, suffering, sin at all. But the fullness of joy beyond anything that we can imagine, and I might as well not try to put it in words because it's beyond my capacity to do that. Now, in the time that we've got in closing, I want to give you a a picture of how this operates in our world today. Uh, And in order to do that, I want to take you back to a, a time in my own life in 1986 and 87 when I was just coming out of one of the darkest battles of my life. And in that battle, God was dealing with me uh, as he does in all battles. He deals with our character along with the enemy that we're battling. He he deals with our own own character. And... uh, I was, uh, I, you talk about feeling useless and hopeless and set on the shelf and not of any use to the kingdom of God and not of any uh, use to people. And yet I was, uh, for lack of any other leadership, I was trying to help people overcome the, the bruises and cuts and scrapes of having come through a terrible church disintegration. It wasn't a church split. It was a a disintegration. And uh, I I had uh, avoided Christians. I I was uh, trying to just hold myself together, but people kept showing up and asking me to to gather people together because we, we need some help. And so out of sheer, really out of sheer not knowing what else to do, I agreed to lead a group of people, so about a hundred of us began to meet. And I began to teach. And I would teach, and I would the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit would come, and people would be blessed and helped. Then I would go to my little uh, one-room one apartment that I'd moved to, and uh, I was hiding from people, and I was crying out to God, and I was really trying to think of what I could do to make a living, maybe uh, get a job at McDonald's or something to hold me over, uh, because everything seemed to be over for me. That's really how it felt and how it looked to me. That's how it looked to me, but that's not what was really going on. Um, just uh, this next few minutes, I want to take you into a story uh, that will illustrate for you how very out of touch we are with what is really going on uh, if we just look at what's seen by our five senses and our surroundings and we check only with our own emotional and mental resources. Because what was really going on was uh, pretty dramatic and pretty important and took me into the ministry that Mary and I have spent 30 years fulfilling, prayerfully, hopefully fulfilling. But rather than uh, try to depend on my memory, I want to read it to you uh, because the details are uh, very important. One bright April Sunday morning of 1987, Wayne Newman approached me at the end of a worship service. Clay, I need to tell you something that happened Wednesday night at church. I was sitting there with Wanda and the boys, and you were saying the closing prayer when all of a sudden I I looked up, and just like it was physical, I saw this huge red bull charging at you. 
Then Jesus stepped in between it and us, and it seemed to go into him like he had swallowed it whole. I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you. Well, the next Sunday morning, another man came to me, this time with his little 10-year-old boy. Neither of them had been aware of Wayne's experience the week previous. Johnny has something to tell you. Go ahead, son. The boy seemed still shaken as he tried to describe what he had seen a few minutes before the closing prayer. There was this thing, this red bull-looking thing, except it was terrible. It was not like any bull anybody could could imagine. It was staring at you and looking like it was going to attack you. Then this warrior angel stepped in between it and you and cut its head off. Johnny's face went from intensity to relieved satisfaction when he referred to the bull's head being chopped off. That was all, he said. Later that same week, I was teaching in the midweek service. The weather had turned really bad, and there was only about 30 people present. I wished no one had showed up so I could go home and hide and read. As I began teaching in the book of Colossians, though, where Paul is making huge statements about the person of Jesus, that he is the heir of all things, because by and for him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were made by him and for him. A surge of power came up in me, and I began speaking as if I was addressing a thousand-man army preparing for battle. I was wishing I could take notes because of what was coming out of my mouth. At the close, a man I had never seen before approached me. I know you don't know me. I'm Tim Rayburn's cousin from Shreveport, he said. I nearly didn't come at all tonight, but I just felt suddenly like I just had to. I suppose this is the reason while you were up there talking, and let me tell you now, I'm Baptist. I don't see things. But I saw two, what I I guess what you might have called angels, but they were not like them little old sissy angels you see in stores. These were big, strong, warrior-looking dudes. They were standing on either side of you. And the more you spoke, the brighter they got. And the brighter they got, the the more they raised their swords. And I guess they were swords. They were holding these things that were like like sabers. And when you got to the part about Jesus being the ruler over all principalities and powers and all that stuff, you know that part. They, They joined those swords over your head. And then this arch of fire shot out all around you and over you. And I heard this voice, and I'm telling you, man, I don't hear voices, just like I don't see things. But you got to believe me. You can ask my cousin Tim. It said, pray for him for protection from the bulls of Bashan. I, I don't know what that is. But I'll sure pray for you, mister. I thanked him, excused myself from the room, and st- started on my way home. The storm seemed to be boiling now. The wind was wild. The sky was green with rage like it gets in East Texas when there's dangerous forces loosed in the upper atmosphere. I wanted to get to the privacy and relative safety of my little hobbit hole as soon as I could. I couldn't help thinking there was some direct relationship to the events at church and the storm. As spiritually dense as I seem to nearly always feel during this time period of my life, even I could not miss the clear and direct words I had received from the Lord in less than two weeks from three different sources. On my way home, I stopped at the storage room where my books had been kept. I had to dig out a couple of Hebrew and Old Testament history reference books. I needed to find out all I could about the bulls of Bashan. The wind was howling as I closed my door. My study lasted deep into the night. It led me first to Ophis, the bull god of Egypt, then Baal, the god of sexual orgies throughout ancient history. 
what was coming at me in my dreams at night, the extreme sexual violence that I sometimes experienced. I'd seen that same energy behind the sexual forces rising in the culture. The marriage of Baal to Moloch was a demonic symbol of movement from sex to bloodlust. The sexual energy of this evil was nothing at all like the patient and caring mutual giving between a husband and a wife in real lovemaking. This thing was an out-of-control, devouring appetite, played out on the screen of the imagination while seeking to lure people into fantasies of masturbatory demonic worship. The only fruit of this union is death. It was coming at me in my isolation. I had not just returned to a normal schedule. I had begun to re-engage my heart a little bit with people. The pain and the loneliness had set me up for a terrible war over my own mind that I knew God was calling me to deal with in prayer and to recommit myself to love what he loved and hate what he hates. There's a line from Lord of the Rings that had rung through my mind. In darkness and loneliness, they are strongest. They will not attack, for there are lights and people. I was being gently pushed by circumstances back into contact with the people of God, but I had to begin to choose to open my heart again and re-engage. For the greatest weapon against principalities and powers is walking in love. Father, I pray for every man and woman listening to my voice now. I pray that you will grant us the a spirit of understanding concerning the spiritual battle that we've been unpacking. But I also pray that we would be able to practically unfold it in our daily lives, that we would not just go off up into the stratosphere looking at uh, concepts that are maybe too big for us while we ignore the things in front of us that make all the difference. Because we're not of any use in powerful prayer in the stratosphere in battling against evil if we're not walking in love and care and gentleness and forgiveness toward those around us. I pray for every one of us listening, Father, and I pray for myself that you would help us live as men and women who are operating with wisdom in both realms, the seen and the unseen so that we might be effective warriors when necessary and lovers all the time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit making the word real to us. In Jesus' name, amen.